1917 revolution in Russia, which led to the downfall of centuries of Russian monarchy, was brought about by working women. Their protests in St. Petersburg on March 8th of that year, in which some 90,000 trade unionists took part, began the February Revolution, a revolution from below, as Leon Trotsky would later write, and one of the most significant milestones of feminism in the Soviet space. This is another episode of Fulbright Forward, a diversity podcast. I am Susanna Hamsha, the Regional Diversity Coordinator for Europe and Eurasia. Russia had strong waves of feminism dating back all the way to Catherine the Great in the 18th century. The February Revolution in 1917 resulted in Russia becoming the first world power to grant women the right to vote. In the Soviet Union, abortion was legalized and marital rape was recognized as an offense. Today, we want to dive deeper into feminism and gender equality in the Soviet Union and the post-Soviet space. How equitable was Soviet society? And how did the fall of the Soviet Union affect women's rights and opportunities? What is the state of feminism and feminist thought in the post-Soviet space? These are just some of the questions I will discuss with Dalia Linarte today. Dalia is a historian, author, and current member of the United Nations Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, in short, CEDAW. She has published extensively on gender in Soviet and post-Soviet society, and I am very honored to have her here with me today. Dalia is from Lithuania and was a Fulbright Scholar in 2002-3. Hello, Dalia. Thank you for joining me here on the um, Fulbright Forward podcast today. Um, to start us off, could I please ask you to introduce yourself and tell our listeners what you would like them to know about you? Yeah, so thank you very much. Yes, my name is Dalia Linarte, and um, my background actually is history. And uh, I graduated as a, uh, as a student of history department, and then I earned my PhD in history in 1996. And mainly, uh, my research focus is women, women's history, family history, and they published a book on oral uh, history. But uh, then starting the uh, 90s, I became um, more and more involved in um, civil society movement and became really interested in issues on the human rights. Uh, and in um, 2011, I was nominated by, by Lithuanian government to be elected to United Nations Committee on Elimination of Discrimination Against uh, um, uh, Women. So it took some few decades when I started in the 90s uh, to be um, uh, involved in human rights issues. But now I have, uh, so to speak, two careers, two paths. It's uh, history as academic activity and gender equality expertise uh, and human rights in general. Thank you very much. And I, I really look forward to talking more about the human rights aspect of your career towards the end of our conversation. But I would like us to start with your history background, which is really fascinating, the work that you've done. What I want to talk about today with you is um, feminism and gender equality in the Soviet and post-Soviet space. And, you know, to, to get us started, I think it would be very helpful for our listeners if we provided some context. In the introduction to this podcast, I talked about the 1917 revolution as a significant milestone in terms of feminist history 
a milestone, not only in the context of Russia um, and Russian history, but globally, really. But what else, from your point of view, is important to know about the history of feminism and women's rights in what was then the Soviet Union? Yes, of course, it's a very much important um, uh, question, but together it's a very controversial one. Just because to uh, just to say that feminism and gender equality existed in Soviet Union, uh, it wouldn't be um, uh, meaning totally correct thing to say. So uh, I just uh, you mentioned the 1917 um, socialist revolution, uh, and of course those events that um, women have been affected in Bolshevik Russia, they were revolutionary. And they took, as you know, they took um, and adopted um, very advanced laws uh, regarding family life and regarding sexual and reproductive uh, rights. However, soon, uh, most probably around the 30s, it turned out that mostly all of those um, Bolshevik laws that we are supposed to, to help women, they turn against them. But of course, um, access to education and um, political rights, uh, these things were very innovative, uh, innovative even if to judge about them uh, globally. But then um, uh, I have to remind that Lithuania was occupied in, 19, in 1940, and um, all these um, laws already, they were not applied to Lithuanian women and Lithuanian um, society. Just the opposite. Uh, after the World War II, uh, the laws regarding women uh, and children and family life, just the opposite. They were very conservative. An actual ideology that um, uh, Stalinist government um, applied to Soviet Union uh, was especially rigid and focused regarding uh, women and children and family life. So feminists didn't apply, didn't work within family. So it, it was it, it meant only that women should left their traditional roles that we are so much developed before World War II, especially in this traditional Lithuanian society, an independent Lithuanian society, and simply uh, uh, um, under the notion of feminism and gender equality, they were forced to, to fulfill their obligation as, as workers for the state praising uh, gender equality, Soviet type, gender equality and feminism in Soviet Union, it's a very risky, uh, very risky task. And right now, for example, we have um, especially not few Western researchers in gender studies and some politicians, and even here in, in Lithuania who 
cultivate um, leftist approach to feminism, they, uh, they again, and this, this is a, young, a younger, much younger generation, actually, they were born in, in 90s already. They, they didn't spend their life, uh, let alone that they have not been born in Soviet Union. So they are fascinated uh, by, by gender equality, by achievements of gender equality, in, in Soviet Union, and they, they go uh, so so far that they say that it was the most, um, meaning most probably the, the, the best form of gender equality and feminism in general, historically. And they also, uh, if I talk to my colleagues in Western countries, they also say you shouldn't uh, be so critical regarding gender equality in, uh, in former Soviet Union just because feminism and gender equality back in 60s and 70s in North America or Canada or Western European countries was not perfect. I say, but it's not comparable with Soviet Union because it was uh, a society that was shut down by the Iron Wall and to speak about uh, gender equality, about egalitarian society in in country uh, which was simply locked down, um, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. We can say that there was established uh, feminism and gender equality of Soviet type. And then, as I said, it should be compared with uh, all different um, uh, aspects of everyday life. Only in such a context, you can measure what has been achieved as gender equality uh, in, in Soviet Union. So to build on that, Dahlia, can I ask you how the fall of the Soviet Union affected women's rights and what it meant for feminism in post-Soviet societies. Did Western and particularly American schools of feminist scholarship and feminist uh, theory gain more attention after the fall of the Soviet Union? So most probably uh, talking about gender equality and feminism uh, during Soviet times and Soviet Union, we should conclude that um, there never ever has been a movement which in Western societies was called as a second wave of feminism, of that actually that created liberal Western feminism. So we, in the 90s, um, we were in this situation that, of course, uh, some groups of uh, women and men in um, independent Lithuania, they we are trying to, to reestablish uh, what was lost. So in the 90s, we started um, uh, creating, establishing in our uh, universities, women's study centers. Later, they were renamed as gender study centers. And we started uh, publishing uh, articles and, and even um, journals under the name of feminism, society, and, and things like uh, uh, very similar that happened in Western societies uh, back in 70s. Uh, and 80s. 
At the beginning, it was very promising, very encouraging. And actually, young generation of women who already were born, as I said, very late in 80s, who were students at, at the universities in, in the beginning of 90s, they took this idea. And our courses at the university level, they were very much popular. But what happened, uh, everything stayed only as an interest and in, uh, at the hands of only a group of activists, just because administrations of any university, they didn't support this idea to establish in reality feminist movement and together to, uh, to establish uh, uh, academic units in the form of gender studies, of women's studies. So those um, few centers that really existed uh, in Vilnius uh, after 90s, the uh, administrations of the universities, they didn't support them financially, and they never allowed, never ever, just please pay attention up to, to, to today. They never ever allowed to establish uh, any degree for uh, gender for gender studies, women's studies at any level, neither bachelor degree, nor MA, nor PhD. So the only center that survived uh, until now, it is Vilnius University. And it, 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 it works only as um, uh, such a structure within some uh, faculty without any formal uh, program. So such, you, you should agree that um, any discipline, any academic discipline cannot be developed normally under such uh, conditions. So, and little by little, it, it became absolutely clear that it's not only administrations of the university, but the whole political body of Lithuania, independently uh, who, uh, who is in the power, right political party or social democrats, they never supported in general, this idea of uh, Western liberal women's movement, or they never supported any real uh, measures that would establish uh, gender equality uh, de facto. The only thing what did happen, it was our accession to European Union, and then our meaning our membership starting 2004, that European Commission in the form of directives, they simply, uh, if there were such directives, and they were, they were established and shrinked in all programs, especially when the Lithuanian government wanted to receive money to be financed in all areas. So it, it only on this formalistic level, that actually gender equality and let's say feminism survive until until today. And here again, I have to say that uh, we always had uh, part and, and very strong civil society organizations. We always had some academics who we uh, who really we are seriously and actively involved in uh, in studying gender, uh, women's human rights, but. This 
is individual activism. On the, on the level of the state and on the level of the government, feminism and gender equality didn't become the natural essence of the, of the state. You just mentioned a couple of aspects where you feel Lithuania is still lagging behind, right? But how would you describe the situation in Lithuania, your home country, um, in general? What are some aspects or areas of life where you feel Lithuania is progressive and egalitarian? And what are some areas where you feel your country needs to do more? Yes, it's depending to, to what we, we compare the situation that we have right now in Lithuania. So if we compare with Western liberal uh, countries, so I would say that the situation is um, worsening and uh, we are not going, meaning, uh, towards this goal uh, of implementing what the uh, Women's Rights Bill, this is the CEDAW Convention. The CEDAW Convention uh, was uh, developed, was built on Western liberal democratic values, on liberal feminism. So we are going towards, away from uh, Uh, from the principles that are enshrined in the CEDAW Convention. So here we see a very clear division already. But if to compare Lithuania with, let's say, Poland or, or Hungary or Bulgaria, we are somewhere in the middle because um, a Catholic Church, even though formerly Lithuanians would say that they are deeply religious people, and you would see on Sundays or, uh, or during the Mass, you would see lots of uh, young people and, and kids um, in the Church. But um, actually, we the, the Catholic Church even though powerful, but it doesn't have such a, such a power of, of word and decision like in Poland. And then we are not so much vocal uh, regarding Istanbul Convention. Uh, yes, our governments, our parliaments, they, they reject even the notion of, of ratification of Istanbul Convention, but it's sort of, it's expressed no, not so explicitly. <laughs> So some, some groups of parliamentarians from various groups and ideological, um, how to say, thinking, let's say, they, they support uh, ratification of Istanbul Convention or they support, let's say, uh, adoption of law on establishing partnership for the same-sex marriages. We have this uh, public discourse. We have those discussions. So my answer is depending to whom you, you would compare. That's a very balanced response. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, when you introduced yourself, you already said that you're not only a historian, but you're also working on policy issues um, on a European level. And to, to sort of round our conversation off, I would like to talk more about your work as a member of the United Nations Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. That's in short, CEDAW. Can you tell us more just in general about your work on this committee? Um, tell us more about what the committee does and, um, and perhaps also share your motivation for working on this committee and contributing to this topic. So if, if to try to explain uh, how do I feel 
working in the CEDAW committee for already nine years, I, uh, I have a very also personal approach. Just because, as I said, I was born uh, in, uh, in 1958. I am product of Soviet uh, society. And um, there was no any way for me, let's say, to study gender studies in the format of uh, liberal feminism. So I am self-taught feminist. That is for sure. And um, the more I was involved after 90s in um, civil society movement and also working uh, against trafficking, especially for sexual purposes, I was lack some meaning room for for uh, for my own education that i that i said uh, i received on my own there was something uh, very tight uh, in the air so when i uh, luckily uh, was um, elected in 2012 as a member to the sido committee i immediately felt like i am at home just because the committee, CEDO committee, consists out of uh, 23 experts from different uh, regions, geographical regions, absolutely different uh, cultural and religious backgrounds. So we are very, very different, all 23 uh, experts. But all of us, we are united to our attachment to the CEDAW Convention, to the liberal feminist principles. And whatever we have disagreements, and we have them, especially on very sensitive issues like, like our understanding on abortions, especially, on our understanding uh, on prostitution, especially. For example, uh, for, for some members in, in the CEDAW committee, prostitution is uh, just uh, a very uh, normal job for women to be pursued. And uh, for some others like me, we say, no, it's just violence. Prostitution is violence against women. And we are trying to convince uh, uh, governments to, to recognize prostitution as a violence. So we have, um, uh, or for example, on gender identity and sexual orientation, even though the CEDAW Convention uh, uh, is not focused on those issues particularly, and originally CEDAW Convention doesn't have even, of course, notions on sexual orientation and gender uh, identity or on LBTIQ+. But um, then we adopted um, a landmark general recommendation on uh, this issue that have been involved. And partially we cover the issue, but we still have uh, many, uh, many disagreements how, how far we should um, involve, involve issues uh, regarding uh, LGBTIQ plus in our general recommendations, in our concluding observations, and our recommendations for, for the state parties. So, but despite all those uh, disagreements, we are united that we are soldiers to keep implementing uh, CEDAW Convention. It's how, how I see my, uh, my mission 
as an activist in human rights and human human rights. Dalia, thank you so much for this very insightful and informative conversation. I learned so much about Lithuania that I didn't know before. So thank you so much for that. I would like to ask you a brief final question before I let you go. And that has to do with your book. You interviewed a large number of women for your history book, Adopting and Remembering Soviet Reality, Life Stories of Lithuanian Women from 1945 to 1970. And I would like to ask you, of all the stories that were shared with you, is there one that stands out, one that particularly touched you and perhaps informed your understanding of um, feminism and gender equality? Okay, thank you very much for this um, uh, question. So uh, personally, I took around 70 interviews from women from all different backgrounds. Among them, uh, these were women who, who were collective farmers, who were very high level uh, Soviet professionals, and uh, who were uh, party, communist party functioners, who were just wives, and uh, who were, for example, mothers of disabled children, just the variety. And if you ask me which one I remember and coming back in my thoughts again and again, and uh, just recently, I understood why. It, it was a woman, Uh, she was born uh, uh, during the first year of World War I, 1914, and uh, she was semi-literate, and uh, she was um, deported, uh, captured by the um, uh, KGB in Lithuania, imprisoned in Vilnius, and she lost, uh, she was pregnant at that time, she lost a child, and then she was uh, sent to Siberia, and she, to labor camp, and she served uh, for a decade, something like this, uh, and she survived, and she came back, and she found her husband, and she continued to live a family life. She she brought to life a few children. And then when she, she became already uh, an aged woman, somehow she was sent to a very modest nursing house. And that is where I found her. She was already an old woman, abandoned by her family, but she was so, so much lucid, so much, I would say, not so much cheerful or optimistic, but definitely not depressed. She was very smart, very lucid, very coherent. And she started from her birth and she described me in a detail uh, her, her life. And uh, at, at the end, you could understand that in front of you was sitting very, in general, according to our understanding, unfortunate woman, but she was dignified. So from that, I now I understand, because it, for me, as a historian, it's very difficult to understand this um, balance between um, uh, ideology and the regime, because it, uh, it came through 
all uh, there was no doors for regime or ideology it um, uh, it has impact on uh, in public life and also in private life and in family life and uh, it's very difficult to say uh, how this individual and personal will of former Soviet people, whether it survived or not, whether we are, according to Hannah Arendt, we are only without any um, will, just very small pieces of uh, something, or some will of individual human being still can survive under any any conditions. So this woman, simply she gave me the answer that most probably you can survive, even if you are semi-literary, even if you are abandoned by your family, and even if you're sent to gulag, at the end of life, you can be in full mind and to talk with somebody and to, to survive your dignity. Maybe Western feminism and feminism in the Soviet Union cannot be compared, as Dahlia argued. But when we look at the stories of women in Eastern and Western Europe and around the globe, really, many of them tell stories of endurance and survival. This concludes this episode of Fulbright Forward, a diversity podcast, which is my last episode. I really enjoyed producing this podcast, so thank you all very much for listening. And please stay tuned for new content from the Western Hemisphere and East Asia and the Pacific.